all stand together as we reverence the reading of God's Word today. We're going to be looking in 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, multiplied grace and peace. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us, through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, grace and peace be multiplied. May God bless the reading of his word today. It's my prayer. You may be seated. <clears throat> the passage before us today is from the last letter written by the Apostle Peter was so prominent in the gospel narratives that it should not surprise us that these two books were written by him. Uh, we're also aware that a lot of mythology exists about Simon Peter. Contributes no doubt to the fact that the bronze statue of him in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome has the toes worn from its feet, a bronze statue with no toes on his right foot. From pilgrims touching it, sometimes kissing it. That has nothing to do with the Peter, Simon Peter, of the biblical narrative and biblical revelation. Uh, Simon Peter, we know, was a fisherman. Uh, he was a very humble man. He was often outspoken. But when he was corrected, he also quickly repented, which is evidence of a humble spirit in him was mightily used of God in many, many places and in many ways. Simon Peter at this point in life is nearing death. He knows it. And he writes this last letter of warning to God's people about the false teachers that were a threat to their faith. It is very similar to the much shorter book of Jude and that it also uh, pertains to those threatening things to their faith. And we could then develop a general outline about uh, this book based on what Simon Peter was trying to get across and the warning that he was given about so much misinformation, so much falsehood, both within the church and outside of it. First, he starts talking to him, and we see that this morning about the subject of salvation, how important it was for them to know, how important then it is for us to know for absolute sure that we are saved, we are right with God, that we have obtained, as he says in this passage, that like precious faith. He would progress then to their knowledge of the scriptures as he pointed out to them that you're not following cunningly devised fables. That's Simon Peter's way of saying, we didn't make all of this up. We were with him. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him. We saw him in his glory. We did not make this up. And so the record that they have given to us of apostolic truth in the New Testament is absolutely reliable. You need to be sure about the scriptures, sure about your salvation. Then he brings up spiritual maturity so that they would not only be saved and growing in their understanding of scripture, but they would be then living out these truths. Uh, that's uh, what the Bible calls sanctification or spiritual maturity. And by the way, that's called the will of God. This is the will of God concerning you, even your sanctification. 
So these three critical things, knowing for sure that we're saved, having a good understanding of the scriptures, learning then how to live out those scriptures, those things are things that Simon Peter gives to us in this passage to help us to weather this storm of misinformation. That was true in the first century. It is equally true in our day today. Oh, I hope everybody in this building today knows for an absolute fact that you have received God's precious free offer of salvation. I'm going to talk to you more about that today, but I hope you have. If you haven't, I pray that you will, even today, because the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. I hope that you have a good understanding of Scripture and you're growing in it. This is God's Word. God's Word, the Bible, the Bible. The Word of God, God's Word, God's Word. Just those two words, God's Word, makes the knowledge of the Bible the most important thing in the universe for us as believers. Knowing the Bible, this is God's Word. We study a lot of books, we read a lot of books, we're familiar with a lot of thoughts. Are we familiar with God's thoughts? God's word. And then learning to live that out. This is important for us today because of what we see going on in modern culture. There are a lot of different philosophical names that are given to it. Modernism, then postmodernism, then all these other things that they have. I'm not interested in all that today. I just want to mention to you some aspects. These have been codified many, many times by many writers that shape modern American thought. Those of you who were born in the 1940s and since, or maybe a little earlier, you have seen a remarkable transformation of thinking and the, the basis for the way we think, what our worldview is generally as Americans and in fact even as Western civilization. You've seen some major, major transformation going on in the culture. And several things, key things that fuel that. The first of them was evolution, evolution. Uh, many of you might think, if you were growing up in school today, that people have always believed in evolution. They did not. Uh, this came on the scene in the 1800s, rose to prominence in the 1900s. It was fiercely rejected. Arkansas, in fact, joined several other states in passing anti-evolution bills, that is, forbidding the theory of evolution from being taught in our schools back in the 1920s. Of course, that passed by the scene as time went on. It was a fierce battle. As late as 1981, Arkansas passed legislation requiring equal time to be spent on the teaching of evolution and creation in the public schools. William Overton first overturned that in eastern Arkansas just a few months later. Ultimately, the Supreme Court overruled all such things in 1987 when they struck down a similar bill in Louisiana. Uh, all of these efforts and many, many more did not stop the spread of the teaching of evolution as an alternative theory of how the universe came to be. May I remind you today that God's revelation to us, but the Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created. That is not by accident. It is the foundational truth on which all the other of it rests. In the beginning, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
everything in it and on it. That's, uh, that's the story. Evolution, though, gives an alternative view. As a system, it suffers from multiple fatal flaws. The chief among them, in my opinion, and uh, probably the easiest one to expose and to refute, is that evolution has absolutely no credible story or theory for the existence of life. None. None. Go out in the yard sometime, pick, out, pick up a rock. The theory of evolution tells you that somehow those rocks manage to animate themselves and form life. That's their theory. They've been saying that for a long time now. They don't stutter. They don't shuffle their feet when they say it. And I'll say it now as I have multiple other times. I don't have enough faith to believe in that. But that is the alternative view. Evolution suffers from many other flaws beside that one. But it leads directly then to the next major shaper of human thought. Because you see, evolution places no intrinsic value on human thought if, or human life. If everything exists as a product of chance, and then there's no difference between being a human alive and being an animal alive or a chimpanzee or a cat or plant life. It's just no intrinsic value in human life. You know what gives intrinsic value to human life? That we were made in the image of Almighty God. That God created us and we bear then His image. Now that gives life meaning and value. And in fact, God placed great value on it. And uh, we see that over and over again. But that leads directly then, this whole idea of evolution leads to the next major shaper of modern thought, which is pantheism. Pantheism then basically deifies everything. It's summarized in Romans chapter 1 as how that men turned from the knowledge of God and they began to worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. Uh, these two things, evolution and pantheism, are so obvious in American culture, I don't think I need to spend a lot of time on it today. It is self-evident, but I will say that saving the planet is now a battle cry of multiple generations in America and around especially the West. With evolution and pantheism comes the next major shaper of thought, which is amoralism. This declares that no system of morality exists outside of our own decisions about what is right or wrong, what is moral or immoral. Any moral behavior has the potential of being valid. Once in America, they talked about a moral majority, but now we operate in America under what increasingly seems to be Morality by majority. If you wonder about that, this was used, that very idea was used as a substance of the Supreme Court decision recently to legalize same-sex marriage. Uh, the majority of Americans are for it, so we'll say it's okay. Read the decision. Like evolution and pantheism, this thinking is so prevalent in America today, it really requires no detailed explanation. Uh, what's right? What's wrong? It's all just seemingly de being determined by the, in the eye of the beholder. The last one of the ma major thought shapers is mysticism. This might be a surprise to you. But mysticism always has been a way that people determine truth, what is right and wrong, on the basis of intuitive feelings. 
what I feel like is right. This leads in all kinds of directions because it's impossible, of course, to rationally argue against somebody's feelings. Somebody knows something to be true. Why? Because I feel it. If I'm a man then, but I feel like I'm a woman. If I, am, I feel like same-sex attraction. If, if, if I feel like a spirit animal today. What, whatever. It's feelings. We might find other names for it, but it comes back down to mysticism. When we're talking about something that influences our thinking, it is the rise and prevalence of feelings. How I feel. Intuitive knowledge which is the basis of mysticism as opposed to factual. What's been surprising and remarkable to me over the last few years is to see how quickly science has capitulated to intuitive thinking. To the point that anymore, for example, the whole issue of gender is no longer determined by biological fact. I mean, that was just turned away from very quickly by the powers that be. Now it's by fluid feelings. And there's no evidence whatsoever to support it. No science to support it. How can you look in somebody's head and see how they feel? We can determine biology, but oh no, that's too simple. Intuitive feelings. How we feel then becomes a substance of truth. Uh, I, I want you to understand today that the Word of God stands in stark opposition to all of this. All of it. Instead of evolution, then we have in the beginning God created. Instead of pantheism, pantheism we worship not the creation, but the creator of all things, including us, which means that we're responsible and accountable to Him. Instead of our moralism, we believe that God has declared some things to be right and other things to be wrong, and we apply his truth into our behavior and the behavior of others. Uh, let me give a couple of quick disclaimers about that. When we say we believe the Bible and God says something is wrong, it's wrong, and God says something is right, it's right, that doesn't mean that we are claiming that we always do what's right and we always avoid what's wrong. We don't. But even when we mess up, we still acknowledge that it's God that's right, not me. And therefore, we're called to repentance. That's to turn from our sin and turn to God. And that's an ongoing process that every Christian experiences. We believe in the standard of the Word of God. None of us claim to keep it perfectly. Only one ever did. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. So we believe that God has declared some things to be right and other things to be wrong. Doesn't mean that we always do it or that we always uh, apply his truth perfectly to our behavior. We don't, but we always acknowledge his truth. And the other thing that has to be said in today's culture is that in spite of all the things that you'll hear to the contrary, the fact that we believe that what God says is true and therefore, what God says is right is right, and what God says is wrong is wrong does not mean that we are purveyors of hate. Uh, we're not. We don't hate people. Uh, lost people are loved by God. Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, and we want to see you come to the, be saved and then come to the knowledge of the truth. We don't hate you. Far from it. Uh, we don't agree with your lifestyle, but that doesn't mean that we hate someone just because we
we don't agree with their lifestyle. It means we love God and we believe his truth. But against then, this onslaught of false teachers in the Christian realm, the, those massive thought shapers that we're up against in culture and government today, we bring our text this morning. It promises how that God will multiply grace and peace. This is a magnificent passage. I want to read it to you again, uh, adding another verse. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that called us, who called us by glory and virtue, by which, by him, if you have, have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We may think this generation has invented corruption. <laughs> we didn't. It didn't happen Simon Peter saw the world he lived in corrupted by lust. Granted, they didn't have the evolutionary element yet, but they had pantheism and polytheism. They had alternate views of the creation and the universe. Amoralism and mysticism was everywhere then as it is now with the same kind of impact on their culture as what we see today. And the way out of all of this, according to Simon Peter... Is through the knowledge of God our Savior. This is the substance and of the incredible promises of God, the exceeding great and precious promises that call us out of a world then that's dominated just by lustful desires, controlled then by their feelings, whatever they might be, for good or for bad, moved in whatever direction that their desires will move them in. This passage tells us you don't have to live that way. There's another way to live. There's three then magnificent spiritual words in our text today. Faith, grace, and peace. And we begin with faith. He says we have obtained like precious faith with us. The word like in this context means the same. It's what we refer to as saving faith. You see, it's one thing to believe that God exists. A lot of people don't. So if you believe that God exists, uh, that's a big thing. Uh, maybe you know who Jesus was. And you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was born uh, in Bethlehem in a manger in a stable. And you celebrate that on Christmas. So you know who God is. You believe God exists. You know who Jesus is. And you believe that uh, Jesus is the Son of God. But saving faith comes when not we believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world but that Jesus is the Savior of me. The us in this passage, like precious faith with us, could refer to the apostles, but in a broader sense, it would refer to the number of the Jewish believers. Jesus came to the Jews as their Messiah, 
John the Baptist announced him to that same audience. He came into his own, but his own received him not. That's in John chapter 1. His rejection, crucifixion, and resurrection then became the source and substance of what was preached by Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people were saved and baptized and dripping all over the streets of Jerusalem. That was Simon Peter, this same guy. The gospel came, as Paul said, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That's in Romans 1.16. This happened by divine decree. And nobody was more qualified to remark on that than Simon Peter was. After all, it was Simon Peter who was taking a nap one day in Joppa at, at the house of one ta- uh, Simon the tanner. Uh, when suddenly he, he got a vision of a great sheet coming down from heaven with all kinds of unclean animals on it that Jews were forbidden to eat. And, and a voice then came from heaven uh, saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Simon Peter says, Not so, Lord. Interesting re- expression. Not so, Lord. Those two things don't go together. Not so, Lord. For I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And God said, What I've sanctified, you don't call common. He saw that vision three times. And then he woke up, and uh, when he did, there were some messengers then uh, from the household of a man named Cornelius, who was a Gentile. Uh, and God would tell him, hey, you go with them. You don't doubt. And you know how that played out. Uh, Simon Peter went into his house, preached the gospel with them, to them. And, and they were saved. That whole family then was saved. The whole household was saved. And so it was Simon Peter himself. That God had used to see to it that Gentiles were saved. And guess what? They got the same salvation the Jews did. Aren't you glad of that this morning? You see, and in fact, that passage will play out. Simon Peter would say that in Acts chapter 11. When he was called on the carpet by the church of Jerusalem for going into a Gentile's house and breaking bread with them and eating, which was strictly forbidden by the law. And as he played this all out, he said, listen, uh, these men received. The same gift that we received, that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those people had spoken in tongues just like they did on Pentecost. The same thing that happened then now has happened again. And that was all showing them that the Gentiles were not going to be second class citizens in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. What have we received? We've received the same precious faith. The same thing, the same salvation that the Jews received, we received. That means I can stand before you today and offer you a chance to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. To believe on him. Knowing that if you will, you'll be just as much a child of God or a citizen of his eternal kingdom as Simon Peter was. Yes. Just as saved as Simon Peter was saved. Just as much a citizen of the kingdom of Christ as he was. Absolutely. We see this play out then as we go on in Acts chapter 8, uh, uh, verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. They believed. They believed what? They believed the preaching of the gospel. That's what uh, Philip was doing. And both men and women then were baptized. Acts chapter 8 and verse 36. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water uh, on in that same chapter. And the eunuch said, see here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. If you believe, you may. 
You see it in the same way then in those two passages. They believed and they were baptized. They believed and they were baptized. He answered. He gave his profession. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. Went down into the water. Went down into the water. And he baptized him. Multitudes of other cases I could mention today in the New Testament, people heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They made a statement of their faith to that end. And they showed that faith through baptism over and over and over again. No case exists for infant baptism that's simply not found in the New Testament. No evidence that baptism then was ever presented as the means of salvation. So that if you ask, uh, how am I to be saved? They never said, well, be baptized. No, no. Baptism was always the result of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. To put it simply, people weren't baptized. When you see it in Scripture, they were not baptized to be saved. They were baptized because they were saved. It's always the way it was. It still is. Baptism is a picture of the gospel. You see, the question comes to you then, to all of you, to those watching from home, in the same exact way. Has there been a time in your life when you believed on, when you trusted Jesus Christ for your own personal salvation? A time when you believed that his death on the cross was for your sins. A time when you then expressed that to him and to others so that you called on the name of the Lord. Has there been a time when you received that like precious faith? If you have, then the thing you need to do is be baptized. And Maybe you've been believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for a long time. Maybe you're looking back to that time when you were baptized as an infant, though you don't remember it. then you need to be baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. And you need to be baptized by immersion because that's what the word means. Put under the water, raised again. That's how it pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you do that as a believer on your own profession of faith, not someone else's. I'm not trying to tell you, and I want to make it very plain to you this morning so that you understand. I'm not telling you that baptism is necessary for you to go to heaven. The Bible tells us how to be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But it does tell us that what we are to do then is to profess that faith in Jesus Christ by baptism. Maybe some of you are struggling today. You don't really know. I'm, I'm, I'm just not sure. I pray this morning that you go back in your heart to that time and that moment when you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I can remember my time. I've shared it with you before. I'll share it with you again. When I grew up, our church had two-a-day revival meetings. If you don't know what that meant, that means you had a revival and you didn't just meet every night that week. You met in the morning and in the night and you ate in between and took a nap and talked to preachers. That basically was a whole week of revival. And one morning in that revival meeting, I came under conviction. 
And I, when they gave the invitation, I knew I needed to go forward. And so I tried to step out, but my sister was between me and the aisle, and she hushed me and wouldn't let me out. I, I was inclined to messing up a lot, okay? I did in her defense. But Mama saw that, and somehow our evangelist and pastor showed up at my house that afternoon. Just happened to come by. They shared the gospel with me. Been right there in the living room of our home. I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I've never been sorry. I never will be. Can I go back to that moment when I trusted Jesus Christ? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. And I hope you can too. And if you can't, then maybe today is your moment. And I say maybe only because you can't do that without the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. It takes Him working in your heart and opening your heart so that you can understand. It takes that. That call of God is necessary. Yes, Jesus said it. No man can come unto me except the Father should draw him. That's conviction. Have you received then that light, precious faith? And if you have then you need to follow him in baptism and make that confession. And don't stop confessing it. <laughs> don't stop giving your testimony. Because every time you tell it, it makes your conviction stronger. Are you sure about your salvation? And then there's that faith. Then there's the two words, grace and peace. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I'll link these together because the scripture did. And because you can't have peace without grace. And if you've got grace, then you can have peace. I want to add in this famous passage in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Our salvation is by the grace of God. And apart from His grace, no one could have ever been saved. The classic example of this is in Romans 5, which concludes in Romans 5, 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's that talking about? So often when we start talking about being right with God or talking about salvation, immediately people's minds start to jump to their works, how they live, what I do, what my choices are, what my decisions are, what I've done, how I live my life. Well, am I being good? Well, I'm not always good. I'm trying to be good. I'm going to try to be better. And it's always going back to our works. I'm going to show you very clearly in Romans chapter 5 uh, what our works does for us. Our works bring condemnation. Your works cannot get you to heaven. Your works can only do one thing, and that's continue you and continue to put you under the condemnation and the judgment of God. That's all human works can do when it comes to this issue of salvation. Sin reigns in death. But grace then reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he can say in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How are we saved? How are we justified? Through faith. And because of that, then we have peace with God. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7 gives us another ingredient, the peace of God. 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So we've got grace. The grace of God that brings salvation. The grace then that uh, reigns through righteousness to eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. As opposed to our works which only bring death and condemnation. Therefore we have grace. And because of God's grace we can be justified by faith and have peace with God. And the peace of God. Listen carefully. We're almost done. Many people have peace with God. Although a lot of people don't. Many people have peace with God without the peace of God. And that brings us back to our subject this morning. Multiplied grace and peace. I understand, especially for our young, youngest members, uh, those uh, who are still in school, maybe in high school or junior high, maybe in college. Young adults, your minds are troubled by the feelings of empathy you have with your friends who are lost and are in the bondage of sin. We never outgrow those feelings of empathy. We want to make peace with them and to live at peace with them, even though they have not experienced the peace of God. They're not at peace with God, and they do not have then peace with God. They need salvation in Jesus Christ. We struggle sometimes because we know on the one hand, listen, we know on the one hand what the Bible teaches. On the other hand, there are people we love and they're not in any way living their life in accordance with this. It troubles us. It troubles us for them. Maybe it troubles in our hearts. After a while, we may begin to kind of question. We may begin to doubt. We may begin to wonder. And let me tell you something. If that doubt ever enters, the enemy knows it. And there will be a lot more things to bring doubt before long. So how can our grace then and peace be multiplied? Never forget it all starts with our faith. That point where we believe on Jesus Christ and receive him as our savior. But then it progresses through that grace and peace. How does that come? Through the knowledge of him. By which end you have been given exceeding great and precious promises. What we need today is for God's grace and peace to be multiplied. For our understanding of scripture to grow. For our understanding then of our own standing with God. Of our own faith. So that that grows. And it's not just a. Uh, a minor part of our life. It's a consuming part of our life and an identifying part of our life. I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I've been born again. I follow God. God then promises that where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound so that peace is multiplied as we experience peace with God and the peace of God. And that peace of God comes to us through the knowledge of His Word. And through the believing of his promises. If this all sounds kind of cyclical. It should. Because that's the way Simon Peter wrote it. Begins with our faith. You've obtained like precious faith with us. Through the knowledge of him then. You get that grace and peace that is multiplied. As you're 
So it starts with faith and then grace and peace. The knowledge of God, then those things multiply. Our faith is strengthened how? As we learn more about God's exceeding great and precious promises. God's grace then works through us more. How? As we learn more about those exceeding great and precious promises. Uh, Our peace then grows in our heart so that these things are settled. We're not just troubled by this. Though we see so many things around us that disturb us. So many people that we care about. Man, I, I don't want them being angry at me. I, I don't want them uh, hating me or thinking that I hate them. I, I, I don't want all this turmoil. What am I supposed to do with all of this? But as we grow in our knowledge of God's revelation to us, of God's truth to us, then that peace is multiplied. It, it, it's not a hope so or maybe so folk anymore. It becomes, I know what the Bible says. And that's settled here. And it's settled here. And nothing is going to trouble that. Those waters can't be disturbed. (laughs) Just can't happen. I'm settled on the truth of God. I know what God has said. I know my faith is solid. I see God's grace at work in my life. And I experience His peace. Exceeding Great and precious promises. And by the way, if you're wondering, and you should be, what those promises are that Simon Peter brought to us, well, I would say probably the chief among those was the one he gets to in chapter 3. And that's the promise of the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Though many will doubt it, he talked about that, warned about that. In the last days, many scoffers will come walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For Nothing ever changes. It's just going to keep going like this forever. We've got to save the world. It's all up to us. Oh, what are we going to do? You know, those thoughts never come to my mind. I never once spent, I hadn't spent a minute of my life figuring out, trying to figure out how to save the planet. Because I know, according to the Bible, the planet's not going to be saved. God is going to destroy this one and rebuild another one. I know that because he spelled it out for us very plainly in his word. I know that Jesus Christ is returning for his people and to judge the world. I know this. Why? Because it is spelled out for us very plainly in his word. Exceeding great and precious promises. By which he said, you can become partakers of the divine nature... God will make you more like him. And you can escape from the lusts that so dominate so much of the world by these exceeding great and precious promises. I want to ask you today, you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Are you sure about your salvation? Are you growing in your understanding of the Scripture? Can you look at that and say, man, I need to do a lot of work. Start. Start. (laughs) Start. I've told you many times, start in the Gospel of John. Uh, That's a great place to start. Go from there to Genesis if you want to. That's that's good. 66 books. Books. Choose one. Start. Start learning. Start enjoying then God's grace and God's peace 